Good morning. You're listening to KBBI AM 890 in Homer and K201AO on 88.1 FM in Seward. Welcome to the coffee table. I'm your host, Hope McKenney, and I'm here this morning to discuss the shortage of EMTs and firefighters at the Homer Volunteer Fire Department. My guests this morning are Deputy Chief Joe Kalis and EMS Assistant Chief Samantha Cunningham from the Homer Fire Department and Deputy Chief Eric Schultz from Kachemak Emergency Services. If you have questions, feel free to call in at 907-235-7721 or email me at hope at kbbi.org. So thanks for joining me, first of all. Um, to start, I just want you all to introduce yourselves. Tell me a bit, a bit about your history in emergency services. Joe, let's start with you. Absolutely. So I am the Deputy Fire Chief for the Homer Volunteer Fire Department now. I actually came up here from Florida. I started my career off when I was 18 years old. I became a volunteer firefighter EMT for a county fire service there in Florida. And then I obtained a paid position, worked there for 12 years or so, uh, moved up in the ranks uh, through starting out as a basic firefighter all the way up to a battalion chief. And I did a lot of volunteering here in Alaska because I have family up here. So whenever I came on vacation, I would volunteer. I volunteered out in Cooper Landing and decided we wanted to move. So here I am. And when was that? When did you come here? Uh, we came here. My wife and I moved up here beginning of last year. Okay. So we've been here about nine months. Okay. A bit longer than I have. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Samantha, let's go to you next. Good morning. So I'm Samantha Cunningham, and I'm the uh, EMS Assistant Chief for the Homer Volunteer Fire Department. I have been a volunteer up here since 1994 when my, my husband, my late husband, and I moved up here as paramedics. And we immediately went to the Homer Volunteer Fire Department and filled out our applications, I believe, within the month. Uh, it was a beautiful, sunny July and... Um, by October, we were volunteering with the fire department as two of their uh, paramedics. There's not a lot of paramedics up here, so that was a good thing. And um, continued to volunteer all through the years um, for both Homer, and then as the Homer area grew, there was Ketchumac Emergency Services, and I volunteered with them. Uh, my late husband was part of the uh, initial service there. Um, got that rolling back in the day, and then I volunteered out there. And I've also just been part of um, teaching across the state. I've taught everywhere from Naknek, Alaska, down to Sitka, um, up in Anchorage area, here back and forth, and of course locally. And I had the great good fortune to be hired on as the EMS assistant chief uh, just over a year ago here in Homer. And I've spent a lot of time working with volunteers. I also um, did my firefighter. And I have a lot of outside interests, too. So you see me pretty much all around the community. All right. And Eric, tell me about your path to coming to Kachemak Emergency Services. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Eric Schultz. Um, I actually worked for uh, a fire department down in Florida. Uh, it's there for 26 years. I've actually been in the fire service about 33 years now. Uh, retired from there as uh, a firefighter EMT, uh, did hazmat, became a, uh, a district captain. Uh, my wife and I moved up here 
Yeah, right at two years ago, and uh, currently the deputy chief for Ketchmack Emergency Services. How has that transition been? It has been spectacular. We love it up here. Okay, good to hear. All right, well, thanks. So for those who might not know, tell me a little bit about kind of how the Homer Volunteer Fire Department is structured, how many firefighters and EMTs are on staff, and how many volunteers are there, jurisdiction. Um, Joe, would you like to take that? Yeah, I can start with it. So I'll start it, and then I can pass it over to you, Chief Cunningham. So... The Homer Volunteer Fire Department is more of a combination department. And by combination, uh, if you look at the definitions, a volunteer department is going to be a strictly volunteer department, which is what Homer used to be. Unfortunately, as the population grows, our call volume goes up. Last year, we finished up with 785 calls within the year of 2022. If you look at the patterns, we've been growing almost 100 calls per year for the past three years. And we're on track. You know, we'll see how that goes, but January has not been kind. So as it grows, you have to have guaranteed people that can roll out of the station within a minute to a minute and a half when 911's called. So what we've transitioned to is more of a combination department. We have three of the chief officers that are on staff. We work Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, in a perfect world. Uh, we do come to callbacks <laughs> whenever the you know 911 calls. This is a 24-7 service. It's not just 8 to 5. We also have the council is actually generous enough to improve, to approve us to have now six personnel, which gives us two people on duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week across the board. Uh, in order to run your most basic medical call, you have to have one person to drive an ambulance and one person to be in the back. So if you were to call 911 three months ago on the wrong day, and there's only one person there, the ambulance would show up, but then they have to wait to take you to the hospital until we get some help. Uh, and our volunteers have been awesome about that. We have a couple different ways that they communicate with us. So for the most part, we always had a driver. We always had a volunteer that could work in the back, depending on the level of the call. But ultimately, you know, we want to make sure that we get that fast emergency service to people. And our volunteers are great, whether they are coming in after the call and watching for our second out calls which is where if, so the medic unit's on a call, we get another call for 911, somebody else has to answer it, or they'll meet us on scene to help drive. So that's kind of the combination feel that we have. So we have a combination of our volunteers versus our paid staff, and the paid staff ultimately augments the volunteers. We have much more volunteers than we do paid staff, and it's not, a, not an operation that we can run without our volunteers. Thank you. Samantha, do you have anything else to add? Sure. He's done a great job of covering the staff um, and the needs. We currently have about 30 volunteers um, on our roster. Out of that, 15 at any one time are what we call active volunteers. Some of those volunteers that we have are departmental services or um, support staff. So we have, for example, uh, more senior personnel who are not going to get up and do a medevac transfer at 3 a.m., but are absolutely invaluable as engineers on a fire. So they will be the people who, you know, help run the trucks on the fires and things like that. So, and then there's also the fact that volunteers are just exactly that. They're volunteers. So at any one time, we have an LOA board, leave of absence, 
So right now our LOA board is uh, very richly populated because uh, it's a time of year when thoughts of Florida and um, Hawaii seem really good. And, and uh, so our, our leave of absence board has, I believe, nine or, nine or 10 people on it currently. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's how our, our, you know, we ebb and flow. So 30 translates to 15 active. I have to say that I am incredibly gratified that we have 15 active volunteers at this time. That is unusual. And it speaks to um, a real effort on the part of the community, new people stepping up to fill in. And we'll talk about that later on, about uh, how you get new volunteers, what it means mm -hmm. to become a new volunteer, um, all the effort involved in that, and where people progress from that if, if in fact, they do. And those 30 volunteers, you say you feel pretty fortunate to have 15 active around there right now. I mean, how does that, how do those numbers compare to past years, maybe pre-pandemic, um, or even in the 90s when you started? So one thing to keep in mind with that, it looks, it looks kind of grim when you look at, well, we've got 30 people on a roster, but we have 12 or 10 to 15 that show up. Um, but then if you look at past years, like I said, over, over the past three years, our call volume has gone up 100 calls almost per year. And it's going to continue to do that. I, the housing market is the best indicator to show that we have an influx of people coming in. We have an aging population that's also coupled along with that. And so our calls are just going to keep going up. So ultimately, if you look back, like if you look back in the 90s when volunteerism was a really big thing and it was it was vast amongst the fire service, the call volume wasn't there. Um, they ran a lot less calls. There were a lot less standards that they were held to. Nowadays, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on, we have so many different research hours that we have to do, so many certifications that they have to hold. I can't allow someone to drive an ambulance, which would be great. Having a driver's license doesn't allow you to drive an ambulance. We still have to put you through hours upon hours of training. You have a CEVO course that you have to go through. You have research hours that you have to do. So there's a lot of extra that's held to that. And that's where, if you look back, like you said, in the 90s, that stuff just wasn't really there. So it's not terrible when you look at it comparatively. If you look at what we are requiring of people, it's it's awesome that we have that many people coming out. Okay. And, and Eric, in a minute, I'm going to move to you as well. But what is kind of the coverage area of the Homer Fire Department um, versus Catchmatic Emergency Services? So Homer, um, the city of, if you start thinking about if, if you pay, if you pay borough taxes, you're, you're in the borough. So if you picture a, a donut with a circle in the middle, Homer proper is, is the circle in the middle. And we service, um, that area and it runs, um, up to the, um, the top of Baycrest Hill at the landfill station. Um, and then it runs, um, there's a, a little jog where it goes up West Hill, um, most of the way up West Hill, and then a little bit, a little side bite. And then um, across, you go to East Hill, and you go up to the top of East Hill, and that's why there's a fire station up there. Um, it's not an active manned fire station, but there is a fire station up there for uh, the Homer Volunteer Fire Service. 
and then it comes back down and we cover we have a contract with the um the area near um we cover Ketchumac City so we contract with them and provide they have a station there at the Ketchumac uh, community center with a truck that's that's there and then we come back curve back in and obviously the spit which is we all know in the summertime is an entity unto itself and requires a lot of city services and then everything outside of that would fall under um, the Ketchumac Emergency Services. But keep in mind that this is there is this thing called mutual aid, and we'll talk about that, where these boundaries are very interlocked and, and uh, work with each other very tightly. Okay, and so, yeah, Eric, tell me a little bit about Ketchumac Emergency Services, how it functions, how it's staffed. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Ketchumac Emergency Services area, or what we call KISA, uh, we are 214 square miles. So we cover, of course, the area around Homer. We go up uh, Sterling Highway. We go way out East End Road. Uh, ran about 270 calls last year. And, and just like with Homer, of course, call volume is increasing. We're consistently seeing a 10% increase in call volume year to year. Uh, uh, currently, uh, we have nine paid staff. Uh, around about 20 volunteers, and, and similar to Homer, out of those, sorry, out of those uh, 20 volunteers, uh, about half of them are are active. So we'll uh, we'll see them consistently on calls. Okay, and so you have a slightly higher staff, um, but how? Oh, okay. it, no, 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 sorry, no, it's like a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, How does volunteerism kind of play into the role of? Yes, Kisa? excellent. Um, because staffing for us, uh, because we are a combination department also in that we have, of course, you know, paid crews and volunteers. Uh, with KISA, right at the moment, the paid staff, in essence, works Monday through Friday, 8 to 5-ish. And I say I like that. Of course, some people come in early and leave earlier, and some folks will come in later and leave later. But in essence, it's Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. So if a 911 call comes in outside of at normal business hours, so to speak, we're relying on volunteers to get to the station to pick up equipment or to go to the to the actual scene of emergency or uh, the page staff to come back in and you know, do the same thing you know, pick up the truck or uh, you know, go to actually go to the scene of the emergency so um, firefighting and EMS are very labor-intensive so if you have you know, just a few people showing up uh, for the trip say say with a medical call for the trip from the house to the hospital, eh, depending on the level of the uh, level of call, level of, level of acuity, you could get by with two people. You know, one person driving the truck, one person in the back with a patient. But of course, if it's a, a more critical patient, of course, you want a couple of extra people in the back. And just when you get on scene, even just and I say just, but you know, a medical call, you don't think of as being real labor intensive, but it is. Uh, even something as simple as trying to get a patient downstairs is going to take you know, more than more than just two people. If you have you know, three or four people, it's spectacular. Uh, and, and fires certainly are very, very labor intensive. And if you think you know, structure fire, you could easily find stuff for 12, 15, 20 people to do. Yeah. So, uh, um, so back to, uh, um, to Samantha's comment about mutual aid, yeah. it's a lot of what our departments do. Is if, 
if we're running a call and we need extra help, we'll call them for mutual aid. If they're running a call, they need extra help, they call us for mutual aid, and we are happy to, to go back and forth and help augment each other. Okay. And so if there's a call, for example, I live out the old Sterling Highway, if I called the fire department, would you all, because I, I'm outside of city, Homer city limits, who would come to my house? How would that work? You would, we Kisa. Would. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah, Kisa just to, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Okay, yeah. just to confirm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, and just to recap, you're listening to Coffee Table. I'm your host, Hope McKenney. I'm here this morning to discuss the shortage of EMTs and firefighters at the Homer Volunteer Fire Department. My guests this morning are Deputy Chief Joe Kalis and EMS Assistant Chief Samantha Cunningham from the Homer Fire Department and Deputy Chief Eric Schultz from Catchmack Emergency Services. If you have questions, you can call in at 907-235-7721 or email me at hope at kbbi.org. That's a mouthful. There's just <laughs> some big titles. Um, okay, so fire department, the fire department here as well as departments across the country are facing a shortage. Why is that? Um, I know we had a discussion last month, I guess, yeah, in December kind of about this. Um, why are people not volunteering anymore? Uh, Samantha, would you like to take this? Sure. Um, There's almost a perfect storm of reasons why, and I'll just hit on some of the real key ones, and if I miss any, I'm sure that other people can think of them too. Um, We'll go down the line. There are, uh, COVID was not kind to EMS or fire services. That was that was incredibly hard. Um, a lot of us spent time thinking about what if in our heads, and I'd always wondered, what if the Black Plague hit? Would we would 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 we head for the hills with our family, or would we get out there on the front line and and you know run the ambulance until we dropped? And it turns out that we stayed on the front lines and ran the ambulance, which was kind of amazing to me. But in the middle of that, while continuing to provide um, emergency medical care and fire coverage for people in, and keep our communities safe and provided for uh, to the level that we have expected with a whole new range of medical problems that we had not faced before, our challenge was trying to do training in the middle of that. And there simply flat out wasn't a way that we could find to do safe classes to bring people in and in group settings and do the kind of training that you have to do to make people firefighters or EMTs. You have to touch people, you have to be in each other's faces. It was was impossible. It was untenable. We were able to continue to support our volunteers in the basic training, the, the people that we had, our staff and volunteers, we did that. We were very innovative. We did a lot of outside stuff. We did a lot of distance education. Um, but it was very, very hard. So that was that was sort of the icing on the cake of challenges for uh, volunteerism. On top of that, we have uh, volunteer um, challenges, including the fact that more and more people have uh, both people in houses typically work now. It's usually, you know, you have to have two jobs per family, not just one job per family. And in Alaska, I dare say you can ask a half a dozen people and find that they have two or three or seasonal jobs on top of that. And the spare time for taking on 
emergency medical and fire volunteering, and we'll talk about what that entails in a minute. Uh, just the sheer time frame of that is stunning. Um, so it's very hard if you're already pushing your boundaries on you know how much time you have. Um, we ask more of people now when they train. When I started, it was um, 80 hours for a basic EMT, and that was with you know everything all put together. And then we gave you a, a T-shirt if you were lucky, and we slapped you on the back and said, "Go for it." <laughs> and um, driver training, hmm, yeah. Um, old Ralph would take you out driving around the pea patch and at the end of that say, well, that looked pretty good and you're, you're clear to drive and I can, you put the chains on. Um, and standards of care change. Um, and we provide a better standard of care. We also did more what we call basic life support than advanced life support back in. Again, remember I started in 1987. Uh, it was my first class in, in Brattleboro, Vermont. And it was very similar to what we call an ETT class, which these fine gentlemen are going to talk about, which we just provided through the local high school, which was a wonderful success. But it was very similar to that, which is about 40, 44 hours of time. And at the end of that, I was allowed to ride on an ambulance and provide care for patients. And you know, I continued to go up through the ranks, but that was a pretty low bar to get onto the back of the ambulance. Um, when I became a paramedic, which is a high bar, um, back in the 90s, they literally didn't have a 12 lead, for example. So I didn't have to learn 12 lead. I didn't have to learn a massive amount of drugs. Um, I didn't have to learn end title. I mean, I could go on about minutia. But the amount of training that I had to take was considerably um, less, and that was for a paid position. If you expect somebody who is a volunteer to do that same critical level of training and then maintain it, um, I think maintaining it is a thing that we all forget about. It's kind of like if you... Um, to keep somebody an ALS provider, advanced life support, which is what we now expect in our communities, um, it's a little bit, if you can think of it, like uh, bringing your cousin up from Nebraska and you put him on a boat for two weeks and you teach him how to tell a silver from a king from a red salmon. And it's a great two weeks and he has a great time and then you send him back to Nebraska. You can't bring that kid back up in eight, ten months from now, put him on a boat and tell him he has to tell the difference between a red and a silver and a king salmon. Oh, and by the way, it's life-threatening if you get it wrong. Like somebody could die if you didn't do it right. And, and everything's on the line right now. So just creating somebody who has that training is only half the job. You then have to keep them at that level of training. You have to keep them able to look in that um, fish tote and go, that's this, that's that, let's tell the difference between them and do it fast and do it right and do it right most of the time so we don't have uh, mm -hmm. bad things, you don't, you don't want bad things to happen. You want to call the ambulance and have people who are really proficient know what to do for you and take you to the hospital correctly. And Samantha, you're touching on this, but why don't we shift to kind of what are the requirements now to 
become an EMT or firefighter at a station like this or at Kisa? Yes. Uh, here in Alaska, what we would like to see is uh, Firefighter 1. Um, the state doesn't have a specific hour requirement as far as how long that training takes, but from a practical perspective, you can easily spend 200 hours teaching a Firefighter 1 class, and it's just the basic stuff. Uh, ropes and knots and hoses and supply lines and forcible entry and ventilation and so forth. So there is a lot that goes to just just the basics on a fire ground, and, and rightly so. It's a, it, it is a dangerous environment, right? It's a dangerous atmosphere. Um, but that's not to say the um, it's not to say that you're, you're, you're trying to trying to get folks hurt. Of course, you're trying not to get folks hurt, so that's why you're training them. This is what you're looking for. This is how you do this. This is how you do this. So there is a lot of training that has to go into just becoming Firefighter 1. And, of course, after Firefighter 1, uh, the next step is going to be Firefighter 2, which is easily another 100 and some odd hours it, just learning it, and more on the on the basic side of things but in a volunteer firefighter would be the firefighter one level or uh, and, even and not necessarily you, okay. you could be, you could yeah. have both oh yeah absolutely sure yeah yeah volunteer absolutely can be firefighter one firefighter two okay. uh, that's yeah, really firefighter one is just just entry type stuff okay so yeah. that would be the most basic level that you'd need in order to become a volunteer firefighter mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Just, yeah. just to confirm. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> and, and, and we say that because um, like there are some areas that are way off in the bush to where they're not going to be making interior attacks in the, in the structures. So the training requirements, in essence, would be less there because they're not going to be in the same specific environment, the same, same atmosphere. But um, if you're going to be making entry into a, a structure fire, yes, you know, firefighter one, you want to be trained well enough to, to where you can do it and not get yourself or anybody else hurt. Okay. And then in terms of EMTs, um, I know that, Samantha, we talked about kind of how many hours even go into, first of all, the training, studying, um, on your own, testing, recertification, um, and kind of w and the barrier that that might pose to people who would be volunteering their time to do something like this and have to go through these recertifications every year and all that entails. So what's amazing is that in the last year for the Homer Volunteer Fire Department, I've been able to run not one but two EMT-1 classes, and they've both been full. So we've had two classes, uh, one with uh, nine students, one with 11 students. And in those classes, we covered 160 hours of physical classroom, you know, sitting in your chair or doing doing um, physical activities, whatever it was, for your EMT-1 class. And on top of that, they also participated on their own. They had study time, et cetera, another, usually it's 40 to 50 hours of independent study that goes on in there, uh, independent practice. You have to learn a lot of route memory. You have to learn how to backboard somebody without having to think about where the straps go so that your head can think about something else. And so there's a lot of route memory that we do with that. And those people, um, it's amazing, those graduates uh, have gone on to become volunteers. And like I said, back when I started, it was 80 hours, and that was at the most what you what you had to do. And now it's up to 160 to really cover all the equipment that we use. We have these machines called uh, 
Zoles or life packs or whatever they are that um, do a lot of critical monitoring of our patients. They check your pulse oximetry. I know a lot of us learned a lot about pulse oximetry and um, in during COVID times, a lot of people who'd never uh, been very familiar with that learned that that was important. So that's a, a good example. We have um, the 12 lead monitoring that I mentioned that can find in your home a heart attack as it's happening and tell people exactly where in your heart the damage is happening and um, change the level of care for that person immediately right up through their medevac to anchorage. So all of those things these EMTs uh, learned how to uh, work with and um, proficiency in where, this, where the equipment was on the truck, how to spike a bag for their ALS provider so that, um, so that the IV is ready to go when the emergency happens, all those support things. Um, and then that doesn't count the fact that we keep talking about driving. I mean, if anybody who got up this morning and tried to get to work knows that Alaska driving is challenging. And we, one of our big emphasis is, hmm, not about that word. One of our big um, pushes right now is to make sure our people have good driving training and that we're showing that put together for our department. Um, and like I say, it's amazing that these people in the, you know, came in from the community. Um, we had full classes. They plowed through it. They didn't drop out. They held it together. They passed their state exams at the end. And they are part of the reason that we have 30 people on our roster right now. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of COVID, we did not have 30 active volunteers with our department. So we had to basically rebuild from the rubble of, of a, a really long, prolonged period of being unable to teach classes, unable to bring people in and get them excited about our department. Um, it, yeah, it was, it was definitely a real challenge. So, so yeah, those are some of the facts that, um, some of the factors that really affect how you come in as a volunteer. And at the end of all this, we're going to have to try and convince our listeners that they too would like to come in and do this. So I'm, I'm hoping we don't paint too grim a picture, because there is another side to this. Part of us, part of what we're discussing here is how, why there is a dearth of volunteers for the emergency medical services, and then the other side is um, why, what the benefits are of becoming a volunteer. Um, the one thing I would like to point out is that it's a very, very odd system to begin with that we're even sitting here having this conversation because it is one of the very few professions left where we genuinely have to depend on volunteers for a professional delivery of services. Mm -hmm. There are not um, 30 volunteer doctors in the Homer community um, who come out at 2 o'clock in the morning to the emergency room to take care of people. There are not 30 volunteer garbage truck drivers or snowplow providers who come around and take care of your driveway to augment the city's staff. Um, so we're talking about a really unusual um, system that has developed, especially in rural communities Alaska specifically is very unusual. We have a very high rural rate. We also are fifth in volunteerism for the nation. 
and those usually go hand in hand, the rural states and the volunteering. And it's because there simply are not resources and tax bases to support what would be, you know, the fantasy world, which is a staff of, you know, three full-time, eight full-time people to, you know, dash out in helicopters to save you no matter what, life or, life or death, night or day. Um, and that's not going to happen. Um, but what we're talking about is the best balance we can strike between um, what we'd like to deliver and, and what we're dealing with on the ground. Yeah, you actually described becoming a volunteer firefighter or, oh, looks like we're getting a call, <laughs> or EMT, almost like a second career, mm -hmm. um, but then you, in terms of the training you need to go through, but then you're volunteering. Um, I don't know if that's a call that you need to take right now, Samantha, no. Could you just um, elaborate on that a little bit? Um, you talk about it being this whole other thing than volunteering at your local food pantry or something. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, so I will touch on that. So one thing I do want to uh, point out here is, you know, like Chief Cunningham just said, is it is a profession. So we are expected, I mean, when you call 911 or if my wife calls 911 right now, I don't care who shows up. I don't care if it's a volunteer or if it's a paid person. I expect you to be professional. Um, I expect you to be proficient in your skills and your job. My daughter's life depends on it. My wife's life depends on it. Uh, the listeners that are listening, you know, they're the same way. This is a life or death route. So you can't, and that's one of our questions on our interview process that we had was, you know, do you feel that volunteers and paid staff should be held to the same professional standard? And the answer across the board was yes, because you look at it as, like I said, it's a life or death situation. Mm -hmm. um, so what kind of stems from that is then we have the amount of training hours that are required, which Chief Cunningham has kind of touched on, and we're trying to bring people in on in the evenings. We do a lot of our trainings from 6 to 10 or on weekends, and they're putting in the same amount of hours that I do for this to be a career and to pay my bills and they're putting in the same amount of hours as I do for free. So essentially they are they are trained once they're done where they could go get a job somewhere if they wanted to. Uh, if we have an opening, they can apply with us. We actually, uh, right now, three out of our four paid staff were volunteers with the organization before they were hired. Mm. Our part-time hire volunteered for us for a very long time and was very proficient, did a great job. Well, we got a part-time position for the summer, so he just filled in the spot. There was no difference in what he did as a volunteer versus what he did as a paid member. Mm -hmm. uh, the requirements are the exact same. So they are essentially you're doing a career. All right. Well, thank you. We need to take a brief break. We're over halfway through our program. Um, if you have any questions, you can feel free to call in when we come back at 907-235-7721, or you can email me at hope at kbbi.org. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about why people maybe should get involved in the fire department here. All right. <laughs>
right, welcome back to The Coffee Table. I'm your host, Hope McKenney, and I'm here this morning to discuss the shortage of EMTs and firefighters at the Homer Volunteer Fire Department. My guests this morning are Deputy Chief Joe Kalis and EMS Assistant Chief Samantha Cunningham from the Homer Fire Department and Deputy Chief Eric Schultz from Kachemak Emergency Services. If you have questions, feel free to call in at 907-235-7721 or email me at hope at kbbi.org. So we left off talking about kind of this other side of um, like why people should volunteer, why people should get involved in emergency services here. Um, We have a question from a listener that they ask, how, can you ask about the program to get older high schoolers involved with the Homer Volunteer Fire Department? It is a wonder opportunity for young folks to see if the fire service is a career for them. Spectacular! I'm trying to uh, trying to get the uh, the older kids, uh, younger adults involved in the fire department. Uh, in particular, uh, one of the things that we had, um, we've done recently uh, is try to involve the local school with our firefighter program and some of the, uh, the medical training. Uh, for instance, we had a firefighter one class last year that actually had um, two of the uh, homeschool students that were in it. Um, uh, of course, they're, they're not 18 yet, so you can't put them into a dangerous anything. You, you can't run you know, power saws and that kind of thing. However, you can still do all the other training that just doesn't potentially have a dangerous aspect to it. So they were able to spend a whole lot of time in a fire station wearing bunker gear, working with all the equipment, and, and seeing all the stuff and think, oh my gosh, yeah, how cool is this? Right? Why wouldn't anybody want to do this? Um, we, uh, we actually just recently uh, held an, uh, an ETT class, emergency trauma training class at the Homer High School. It was specifically to give the, the local high school students the opportunity to be exposed to the world of fire and EMS. Uh, so that ran for three months. I think it started October and yeah, is about mid-December. Um, it, it's actually, uh, the class itself is actually uh, 40 hours, but of course, you know, we, we added more hours if, if people needed to work on skills. You know, uh, we had, um, you know, we'd meet them at the, at the school during early school hours to work you know, during a, a FOL, a study hall kind of thing. Um, so the, uh, the opportunity was there for, for these folks to to see what goes on in the world of EMS, to see what goes on in the world of fire, and you know, to interact with the people that do this, because the folks that taught the class up here are from Kisa. They were from Homer. You know, so they're, they're the local responders that are actually doing this, so, so they get a chance to, like I mm-hmm. say, get, get exposed to all this, get involved in all this. Uh, the, uh, the Firefighter One class that is gonna be coming up in February. Yep, February uh, 13th is the start date for that. Uh, shameless plug right there. Yeah, February we'll, 13th. We'll give a plug for that at the very end of the program, too. Don't worry. <laughs> we are handing out applications. That's it. And, and that was February 13th. <laughs> um, but, uh, we've been talking with the uh, with people at the school again about trying to get some of the kids involved in that particular program. Uh, same idea. Um, give them the opportunity to be involved with the fire service. And mm-hmm. Just see if this is something that they want to pursue. Because the opportunity for a career 
is there. Uh, whether it's right here, right now, or not, the opportunities to do this are there, and, and there will be opportunities here. But like I said, this gives them the opportunity to just experience this and, and to be involved. Absolutely. All right, well, we have a caller on line one. Let's see if I do this correctly. Oh, that's the wrong one. Okay. Hi, Robert, can you hear me? Welcome to Coffee Table. Oh, Robert, can you hear me? If you'd like to make a call, please hang up and try again. If you need help. Okay, I don't know where Robert went, so we're going to move on from there. Um, Robert, if you're listening, please give a call back, and we'll try to bring you back on the show. Um, and so I think a big question, though, is if we are a mostly volunteer fire department here, can this lead to a full-time gig? Um, it sounds like there's a course that happened at the high school. There's an upcoming course happening. You had an EMT course back in December. Um, I think that's a big question. Can this lead to full-time employment in this career, in this community? So, so that is a very challenging answer. Um, absolutely it can. Uh, like I just said, we hold our volunteers to the same professional standard that we hold our paid staff to. And it would be great to have that. And that's one thing that we run into a lot. I know when we met with the school board, one of the first things that they asked us was, well, that's great that you guys are doing this ETT class and you guys are getting them some extra credit hours. However, where does this lead for them as a career path? Because our students need career paths. And we're trying to promote volunteerism throughout the community, which is a great thing to have while still maintaining that professional standard. So it could lead to paid positions, a paid career, whether here or somewhere else. Like I said, three of our four people were volunteers with us. I know all of our chief staff at Homer have all been volunteers previously, which is a great testament to that. It can lead to a career. The trouble that you run into is, and we do have some great volunteers that are lifelong volunteers. They just want to serve and help their community, and they are invaluable. The trouble that you run into is in this day and age, it is very difficult to commit the time and not be at work where you need to be to pay your bills. I mean, you could walk into any store in the community right now, have an on-the-spot interview, and start a job the next day. There's now hiring signs, and that's a nationwide issue, not just here in Homer. So essentially, yes, it could lead to a career. Mm -hmm. Very, I mean, you'll be certified. You could go anywhere and get a career out mm -hmm. of it. Just whether we'll have the positions here is the challenge. Okay, do you have something to add? Oh, okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe. All right, I think we have Robert back. We're gonna give this one more try. Um, okay, Robert, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, uh, welcome fun. to the coffee table. Well, thank you. I wanted to speak to the rewards that uh, volunteers get from doing the uh are you getting feedback you sound okay on our end okay good um so you know when you're an emt or a firefighter you're really going to help your neighbor when they're in a terrible set of circumstances often and it's one of the rare places where you can do so much to help someone in your community and that's incredibly rewarding and the other thing that I think is rewarding is working with such a wonderful team of people. You know, the 
the connections that you make with your fellow firefighters and EMTs and sort of the sense of community are really family within the organization. Also very powerful. And so I think it's one of those places where you still can make a commitment to your community that is incredibly valuable to your, you know, fellow community members, your neighbors, and your friends. Um, and, you know, often we work in jobs that aren't so rewarding. Being able to find a place where you can do something that is so valuable is unique. And that's why I encourage people really to look at volunteering because I think the rewards are definitely worth it. And certainly there's a price to pay. I mean, you deal with difficult, challenging situations, and you take that home. But the flip side is I think that it's a remarkable opportunity to do something special. So, yes, it's very demanding to get involved. It's very demanding to stay involved. But it's also very rewarding. And uh, I think the people who get involved find that. And what's interesting is a surprising number of our volunteers over the years have chosen to make it a career because they find something they're truly passionate about. So that was my comment. Thanks so much for calling in, Robert. I really appreciate it. Okay. All right. Take care. I think what Robert spoke to so eloquently there um, was the camaraderie aspect that we haven't touched on yet, and it's very difficult to quantify how important that is to all of us in emergency services. Um, we talk about our brothers and sisters, we talk about our team, we talk about there is a, it's, it's we get very hooked on our, our, our group, our team, um, and we care about each other across all the boundaries that sometimes spring up in small communities. Mm -hmm. And we support each other through the good times and the bad times. And it is, it is such an intangible but core part of volunteering at a, at a fire sta a service. It's amazing. I've never had any other experience like that. I would never give it up. Um, you, you couldn't take me out of it if you tried. It's, it's incredible. I mean, that's why I volunteered for the Homer community mm -hmm. for <clears throat> a few years. Um, <laughs> it, it was, the rewards for it were so high that it was well worth it to me. It was, it was in my blood. I, I really appreciate the Homer community more than I can say in their support um, as I worked with my, uh, with my teammates on, on keeping the community taken care of. Uh, anybody else want to speak to that? Uh, I think Robert was absolutely spot on. Uh, there is a tremendous sense of um, sense of uh, sense of accomplishment, uh, that that self satisfaction at helping others mm -hmm. for sure. There is absolutely that sense of camaraderie, you know, that that band of brothers, so to speak, that goes with you know, fire service or, or any kind of emergency mm -hmm. service. But absolutely, so you know, these are all you know, kindred spirit kind of kind of people that that do the same thing, mostly for the same reason, mm -hmm. and it's spectacular. It is spectacular. And there is an awful lot to it, to be sure, absolutely. Mm -hmm. but, uh, 
it is absolutely well worth it. He's, you have people that, that get passionate about uh, just, I don't want to say just, but you know, a hobby, right? So they'll spend a whole lot of time, a whole lot of effort you know, pursuing that hobby, in essence. Mm-hmm. So but with, uh, with, with volunteering, you're still spending a whole lot of time, but it's about you know, volunteering to help the community. So, yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, we actually, we only have a few more minutes left and we have another caller on the line. Um, Kristen, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. All right. Welcome to the coffee table. Okay. Thank you. I just wanted to ask about uh, the company that works around Homer and South Peninsula. Uh, you know, as you can call, you have to leave Earth and go and help people, or you put up most of the night, you know, uh, making runs, saving people, fire, accidents, such. Uh, there are a lot of blowbacks, many of the companies that hire these people, like, we can't have you running off like this and leaving your ships open or something, and you have to spend a lot of time educating the uh, companies and businesses in the area this is important, and they should all right. Thank you, Kristen. So I believe it, there was a little bit of an echo there, but I believe what she was talking about was the support by employers for their employees to participate in emergency services. And that is a really good point. Um, again, back to our rural background as a state, when you know your friends and neighbors, it's a little easier for a small company like a plumbing company or a roofing company to say, hey, your tones are going off on your belt. Is, is there something going on? Yeah, there's a big house fire bound down on Bunnell Street. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow. We understand you're cutting out now. Um, now, I guarantee you that person's not going to get paid by the company, but even the ability to leave and take the time off of work to, to any employer out there who's listening to this um, you know we strongly encourage you to be understanding of people as they go out and try and help the community you know we keep talking about EMS calls growing well we had you know 100 more EMS calls and 100 is just a number if you think about the fact that that means approximately 300 more hours of physical time on the ground spent taking care of somebody. Somebody's got to spend that time. And that's, that's the, the rub there of somebody being able to leave their work and go take care of you and then um, continue to pick up their life and not get fired for that, which would be terrible. Anybody else there? No. Maybe that was well put. Okay, well, we only have a couple minutes left. I want to get one more question in from a listener and then a plug for the upcoming training. Um, is there a place for a volunteer that might be 60 years old and will probably not become an EMT or a full-time fighter, but might be able to do the training to drive a truck or direct traffic or any other type in support for the more highly trained folks? In just like one minute. Okay, I'll <laughs> take that one really quickly. So we greatly appreciate, uh, we've had a lot of people that have come to us and said, look, I can't participate in the EMT or the firefighting, but I would like to help in some way. And we greatly appreciate that with that type of situation. Unfortunately, there are a lot of physical requirements. There are, like I said, these are the new standards that we have to meet and uphold. So we put everybody through a physical health assessment, 
Uh, we utilize local doctors here to do that. So it, I don't want to put an age cap on something. You know, if you are physically capable of doing it and you can go and you can pass this stuff and the doctors say you're good to go, perfect. Uh, otherwise, the best thing that you can do to help us is to help educate the community. If you see flyers, pass them out. Mm-hmm. You know, talk to, encourage, you know, your friends and family to, to step up and help out. All right. And so... We're about out of time. In one minute, there's an upcoming training on February 13th. Tell me about it and who should apply. Okay, awesome. So we have a Firefighter 1 class starting. Starts on February 13th, ends in April. The end of April, I believe it's 29th, is our state test. The class dates are going to be mostly on Mondays and Wednesdays. Those are going to be in the evenings from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. And then on Saturdays from 9 to 5 Uh, 9 to 10 in the morning is a PT requirement, so there is a physical fitness that you'll have to do once a week. And so we are encouraging anyone that feels that firefighting is for them, is curious about it, to please stop by. If you live in Kisa's area, stop by and talk to Deputy Chief Schultz. If you live in Homer, stop by and talk to me. I'd be happy to show you around, talk to you about what that, you know, requires. And then we can get you going through the background process and the physical fitness stuff to make sure you're good to go. All right. Well, thank you so much. We're out of time. That concludes our program for today. You've been listening to KBBI AM 890 in Homer and K201AO on 88.1 FM in Seward. I'm your host, Hope McKenney. Stay tuned for Line 1 Health Connection coming up at 10 o'clock. Thanks for joining me.